Welcome. This is the Life Habits podcast series, and my name is Carl Vredenberg. This is the series that helps you to learn new habits to optimize your life in order to stay sane in this crazy world. This is episode number 104, and the topic for today is Innovation by Design. Now, I've covered a wide range of topics on this podcast series during its more than 10 years thus far. I've also received a lot of feedback on the podcast series from many of you. In fact, let me encourage those of you who haven't provided feedback yet to do so with a rating and or a review in iTunes in particular. Several new listeners have recently come up to me after one of my speaking engagements and asked me to also cover the topics I spend a lot of my professional time on in leading and teaching and doing and speaking about essentially having to do with design, design thinking, design transformation, and what I like to call innovation by design. So here's an episode devoted to those topics or a summary at least of those. Design and the methods and tools of design used to be the sole purview of designers. Not anymore. Innovation used to be expected to come from a select set of companies and individuals. Not anymore either. Design methods and tools are available to everyone and can be used by anyone and any company, big or small, to innovate. And not just for coming up with new innovative products or innovations to existing products, Design methods and tools can be used on services as well as pretty well anything else you'd like to improve. I should clarify that not all the methods and tools of design are now appropriate for everyone, but the subset that are often referred to as design thinking are appropriate for everyone. I've introduced and taught those methods to each of the business units of the company I work for, IBM, over the last numbers of years. I've done the same for many other companies over the past few years and also taught the methods in university programs, including an executive MBA, a director's college, a medical school emerging health leaders one, and a pan-university program that in fact is called Innovation by Design. Design thinking is an approach to solving problems or even improving upon a current situation by first deeply understanding the people involved. What do they do? What do they say? What do they think? And what do they feel about the current situation? How it's done today? And what a few of the most challenging problems are? All of that is done through interviewing and observing them. It also involves coming up with new ideas to address those problems individually and then together with others, and further fleshing out the best of those ideas prototyping them afterwards, and getting feedback on them to see if they're any good and what could be done to further improve them. That's then repeated in what we call at IBM the loop, observing, reflecting, and making. There's a lot more to doing design thinking properly, but for the purposes of this episode, an introductory one, I'm going to give you my seven habits of highly effective design thinkers. I'd like to suggest that you head over to ibm.com slash design slash thinking for more details about our enterprise design thinking framework and methods and my website, carlvradenberg.com, for a deeper discussion of the issues I'm raising here. So to get going on the what, seven habits of what I like to call highly effective design thinkers, let's start off with number one. 
and that is to empathize with, talk to, and get feedback from the people you intend to serve with your new or improved product, service, or process. All of this rests on, first, understanding deeply what's going on today and who it is that's actually in that situation that you're trying to improve upon. And this is relevant to if you're actually in a startup, if you're in a company that develops products or services, also applies to even situations like in your home. If you'd like to actually improve the way that your family works, well, first look at who's involved, what do they currently do, say, think, and feel about the current situation. What does that current situation and the process look like? It might be doing the chores, it might be doing anything in your family. And then using that as input to determine which of the things that are being done today are the most opportune to improve upon and then focus on improving them. But a lot of people and a lot of startups in particular start by just creating something and don't start first with trying to understand deeply what the problem is that they're actually solving. So that's number one, basically empathizing and really deeply understanding the situation you're trying to improve upon. Number two is to get the right skills and to drive true multidisciplinary collaboration between them. A lot of the time, and again, in situations where somebody wants to start some entrepreneurial effort, might well just get together with a couple of friends that have the idea. But if they don't actually represent all the skills that you need to have, whether it's business skills, whether it's engineering skills, whether it's design skills, or whether it's skills regarding the domain that you're in, you're not going to likely be successful. So seek out what you need in the way of skills and then also make sure that you can actually get that. And early on, if you're doing something like a startup, you can actually just get input from somebody that is in that skill group and that as you start to develop more, you can actually solicit and hire uh, skills in those uh, categories of skills as well. What's also important is if you're even talking about doing that in a current organization that you're in, say you're looking at a like a store or retail situation, you wanted to improve the flow of customers through your store. Again, if you started with my number one of really empathizing with and understanding the current situation, then you'd want to go through and say, okay, you know what, we want to improve this, but who do we need to have in that small team that would be able to come up with how we can really improve this and make it really, really effective. Let's say it involved some technology, an app, let's say. Well, you better get the skills together for, for doing that. And also, even if it uh, involved really changing the processes significantly that would start to affect the actual cost of the service, you want to get uh, some business people involved. You also want to be able to understand the market that it's serving as well. So all the skills that you need need to be applied. And very importantly, not just be there, but actually be inclusive in all the decisions that you're making. So making sure that there's true collaboration on the team as well. Number three is to do what a lot of companies are doing these days, and that is using, you know, post-it notes and Sharpie pens in a workshopping space with whiteboard walls 
to do what they often think is actually doing design thinking. And while you can do design thinking that way, a large number of people think that that's all it is and that all you need to do is stand around in a cool looking space, getting some post-it notepads and some Sharpies and start thinking and start putting things up on the wall. And they think that they're being innovative and are actually doing something useful. I call a lot of that innovation theater. They think they look like they're being innovative and they may even look it, but they're not really doing it the proper way, which is really trying to do this stuff in the way that you deeply understand the problem and using these methods as an aid to coming up with reflecting on what the current analysis is with the user research and the like that you've done, the interviewing and the observing. But you also then want to use these methods to think about and innovate on solutions, as I said earlier. But if you leave it there and all of the work that you do using these design thinking methods only happen in a cool room with post-it notes and Sharpies, you're, you're not doing it right. You're really not using the power of it. In fact, you're also even damaging the term of design thinking because it's really not serving the needs the way that you actually the way that the, the methods are actually designed to be able to be used. So you really should be also thinking and changing your frame of thinking about problems in the way that I'm describing, not even using things like post-it notes and the like. You should be doing it and thinking this way every minute of the day, every day of the project that you're working on. Everybody should have this new filter of thinking about who it is that you're serving, what problems are you solving, what feedback are you getting from people on the prototypes you're creating and the like. All of that and not just simply having the what now have become iconic symbols of design thinking, and that is the post-it notepad and the Sharpie pen. Number four is to create what we at IBM call minimal delightful experiences that really represent sort of the experience people will get by just trying a small version of what you're coming up with. A lot of the time, people will either have an idea and they want to build something huge. They want to build the entire thing before they get any feedback on it. And that's not very practical because if you're wrong and the idea was not a good one, you're expending an awful lot of effort and resources to be able to get that feedback. Others will do what they call a minimal viable product and that comes from the agile methods of development. And what that typically is, is yes, a smaller version of the total solution, but it doesn't give you the entire experience that you would have using just that small version of the product. They often don't include an appropriate focus on design, for example, of the user interface of an app, let's say. It's just the capabilities that you're figuring out and, and seeing if they work. That doesn't give a really good bit of feedback on what the intended users would think uh, of it and the way that they'd work with it, because it doesn't give them a small sampling of the entire experience, which is why we argue for to create a minimal delightful experience for a small version of uh, the thing that you're developing in order to get feedback on it. And then you can iterate on that feedback. Number five is you don't have to fail fast and fail often. You know, that phrase, we got to fail fast and fail often, is becoming so popular that so many people are jumping on the idea that, well, you, we should just try something. They should go off and do it, right? And while there's some 
value in thinking that way, especially as it relates to being resilient and actually dealing with and learning from failure. My argument is that too many people are jumping right in and not first trying to understand what the fundamental problem is that they're going to solve first and actually coming up with, as I've suggested thus far, a really small kind of prototype, even in pencil and paper, just to explore what the idea is and whether that is actually a solution to the problem that you're trying to address. A lot of people will just get going and try something and, again, waste a lot of resources. And when you use the methods of design thinking properly, especially those ones that I talked about earlier about empathizing and really interviewing and observing the people that you are trying to solve the problem for and with, if you do that first and then come up with the idea and prototype it and the like, then you can also fail fast and often with regard to paper prototypes, for example. But don't go build the entire solution and then let that fail. I hear a lot of teams saying, especially in startup communities, oh, we're just going to build this app and then if it doesn't work out, we can iterate. We can we can fail fast and, and, and then recover from that. Well, I think that's wasted effort. I think we should, in fact, be focusing on first understanding the problem and clarifying whether a, an idea that we have is actually the solution to it and then very quickly iterate with feedback. And if you call those bits of feedback that you get when you're giving small versions of the thing that we're talking about building and getting feedback on those, if you want to call those failures, cool. That makes sense to fail fast and fail often that way, but don't fail huge and, and often. It's important to be resilient to change and have the focus when you do see some failure, when some idea doesn't work, you should be learning from that failure. But my argument is that you don't have to only focus on trying to fail. You should actually just deal with failure when it comes, but don't plan on for sure failing. Number six is to embrace technology, but to focus on the experience people will have with it, not just the technology for technology's sake. And I see this everywhere, where everybody gets so enamored with some new technology. We need an app for that. Or, hey, you need to, need to apply this particular technology to it and the like. And the coolest and the latest of the technology, the better, right? And that's fine as a secondary thing, meaning that you first got to figure out what it is that you need to solve and then what the potential solutions for that problem may be and if the technology that you're thinking about applying does in fact address it properly, then cool, that's the way to go about doing it. But don't start with the technology and then f try to find a problem to solve with the technology. That's not the order in which to do it because it'll likely lead to failure. So is technology really important? Yes. Is it really important to first look at what user experience, what experience the people it is that you're trying to serve are going to have with this technology. If you do that first, then yes, technology is great. Don't make a solution entirely on the basis of just the technology for its own sake. And number seven is it's a team sport. So you got to get everybody doing it. If you're one person in an organization that now has gotten the interest in or may already be doing some design thinking sort of work. If you're doing that, you know, as the only person in the company, yes, you can improve the way that you think about a problem. You can improve the way that you do your work. And that really is a significant accomplishment as well. But 
in order to really reap the benefits of this whole approach, what you really need to do is do this with others. And that if you do this with others, you will also have that much more impact on the solutions that you come up with. And it's also worth mentioning that the methods, when they're really done well, are really powerful in that they're often activities like, for example, when you're ideating on some new solution and you're also trying to come up with some really crazy ideas to the solution to the problem that you are trying to address. If you do those first individually and very quietly with a whole group of people, and then you get together with everybody else and share what those ideas are, you can then get, and especially if you use some organized methods for determining what some of those best ideas are, like for voting on them with regard to how impactful the ideas are at addressing the problem that you're trying to solve, as well as how feasible they are and how much effort they're going to take. If you were to use those, you know, votes from a group of people, that's hugely effective at number one, getting the best ideas uh, out on the table. And it's important to not do that just by everybody yelling out a solution, because if you do the yelling it out sort of solution approach, then the people that are the loudest, the people that are the most extroverted, the, the, the men typically more than the women will respond in that way. And you'll miss, you know, that quiet person in the corner that doesn't say all that much. Normally, if you get them to come up with the ideas by themselves first, you can get some brilliant ideas in terms of coming up with a really good answer to the the, the problem that you're trying to address. So you do work individually first, you get together as a whole team to come up with what might be the best ideas, and then actually to converge again and work on now fleshing out those ideas more as well, do that individually, and then coming back again. There's real value in doing some of this work by yourselves and then coming in together. But very importantly, with regard to item number seven, is that you really should be doing this together, you know, with others, encourage others to get involved in this as well. And like I said, you can also do that and learn more about these various methods by going to ibm.com slash design slash thinking. You can, uh, dig in there. There's lots of information there for how to learn how to do this work better. And also you can go to my website, carlvradenberg.com and read my blog post there because I quite frequently blog on various topics related to this, including how to introduce this sort of thing into uh, companies, how to teach universities uh, this material and the like as well. So lots more information to glean there. And just a reminder too, before we finish up, Really appreciate it if you provide me some more feedback on the podcast series by going to iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you access this podcast. And I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a comment or a review, I think they sometimes call it. Uh, that'll really help other people find this podcast as well, especially as we had a slow period for a while there, but now back to a regular cadence of delivering these. It'll also provide me with additional input. And you can also write directly to me for additional communication as well for suggestions that you may have with regard to topics that you'd like to have addressed. And you can do that by writing to lifehabits at gmail.com. That's lifehabits at gmail.com. 
let me know too if you'd like to hear more of these kinds of things, these more professional skill and habit uh, development topics as well, in addition to the ones that we have covered thus far in our many episodes. One last comment I wanted to make was that I've learned from the company that, that hosts this podcast series on its servers that it only retains the most recent hundred episodes. So if you're in looking at iTunes, for example, there'll always be just the most recent 100 episodes. So the, the number of episodes beyond 100 aren't listed there. But if you're actually looking for the full list, especially the ones that are older than 100, you can go to my website at carlvradenberg.com and then go to the podcast section of that website and all of the episodes are listed there as well. So if you're looking for older episodes in particular, go to the website and all the other hundred or so episodes that are the most recent ones are available on the feed and are available wherever you get this podcast series on a regular basis now. So I hope that episode was useful to you. Uh, Let me know, give me feedback on it, and we'll talk to you all next time. And bye for now.